Let's pray together. God, we've sung about a great anticipation, and that's so what many of us come with right now, anticipation. We're here believing that you can speak and that you will speak and that you're going to speak to us right now, right here in this moment for your glory and for our good. You're going to speak so that we can be transformed as a result of an exchange with the creator of the very universe. So God, speak. Speak your peace. Speak your wisdom. Speak your promises. The promise that you know us. You promise you are for us. You promise you are with us. You promise that your grace is enough for us. You promise that your mercy is greater than everything we have ever done. And God, we, we receive the refreshing that comes with knowing your promises to us. Now, God, give us the grace to embrace those promises and live like we believe they're true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our series on the book of Psalms. And if you're new or if you haven't been here in a while, I want to let you know that we've got 15 paintings that are out in the lobby by local artist Joel Skuntanis. And with that, we've kind of created something called the Psalms Experience. And in it, you've got an opportunity, if you've got a smartphone, to download an audio file. And if you've got headphones, it'll actually walk you through each of the images that are in the lobby. And each of those 15 come with a corresponding psalm, which will be read to you. And then a, a prayer posture, a position that you can take with your body to respond to that particular psalm. And then also a time of reflection. So if you've not had opportunity to do that, you can go, go to our website, go to the Psalms Experience, and then you can download that file. It'll take about 47 minutes to walk through each one of those psalms. And it's our great prayer that as you do, you will have an opportunity to hear God speak to you. Well, some of you have been following the World Cup with a little bit more attention than others. Uh, if you haven't, brief update. Yesterday, England beat Sweden, and as a result, there were some very rowdy English fans who in England stormed their local IKEA, which is Swedish, and started a riot dancing on the bedroom furniture, uh, much to the dismay of some of the local staff. And that uh, brought me to my own strange, tortured history with IKEA and the products that they produce. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who read the instructions to assemble a piece of IKEA furniture, and there are people who don't. I am somebody who likes to follow the instructions. Why? Because the manufacturer has included them for my benefit. The engineers and designers have already done the hard work for me because they are ultimately committed to my emotional and psychological well-being. I trust them, and if I trust them, I will save time and, more importantly, likely save my marriage. <laughs> my wife, Kelly, of almost 17 years, is different. She's a put-the-instructions-aside-and-figure-it-out-on-your-own kind of person. It's a table, she says. How hard can it be? Give me a screwdriver. Flathead or Phillips, I ask. I don't know yet. Bring them both, she'll, she'll answer. Now, when you are building dorm room furniture, the stakes are fairly low. But when you are making life-altering decisions about your career, about your relationships, about your finances, maybe even your sobriety, the stakes are exponentially higher. And in some cases, the stakes are spiritual life and death. 
The Bible says that there are two kinds of people. There are those of us who believe that God is speaking to us and those who do not. The writer of Psalm 119 believes that God is speaking to us. And if you're not familiar with the Psalms, the Psalms are a collection of about 150 songs, prayers, expressions of reflection about God's faithfulness and even questions that the writers have. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. There are 176 verses and 22 stanzas, each of which correspond to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, in those 176 verses, there are 160 direct references to God's revelation, direction, and instruction. The writer uses words like law, statutes, precepts, decrees, commands, and word. And the psalmist has this fundamental understanding that God is speaking words of life to him and to us. And when we hear and obey God, we will walk with direction, clarity, and light. We're going to look at three of those 22 stanzas. The first uh, is, corresponds with the Hebrew letter H or He. We read the verses 33 to 40 like this. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find a light. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace that I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts in your righteousness Preserve my life. Verse 35 says, Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I see a list of rules, I don't typically go to feeling delight. I'm like, oh, yay, rules! That just sounds amazing! I remember the first few times I read Psalm 119 where he just says, I delight in the law of the Lord. I had the image of this person who was sitting alone in an Ivy League law library just surrounded by minutiae of legal code. And that did not inspire an image of delight in me at all. But the more I read it, the more I started to understand that just like Nate already mentioned, when God talks about law, he is revealing his character. He's revealing his heart. He's revealing his nature, not abstract details about some ancient code. The psalmist believes that God speaks of himself so that we can know him and find joy. That his intent and desire for us is to experience the fullness of life at every turn. And because life is filled with twists and turns, I need God's instruction. I need his guidance. I need a lane to show me direction. I need a lane to show me what direction my life is supposed to go in. When I was in elementary school, my family would often visit my aunt and uncle on their farm in central Indiana. Sometimes my uncle would take me out on the back roads on the farm to teach me how to drive. There were no lanes, so it didn't matter. It was just us, and we were only going around in circles. But when I was older and in high school, and it was time for driver's ed, you better believe that I studied every rule about lanes, about direction, about traffic laws. I learned that a broken white line meant that I could cross it to pass a car going in the same direction. And that if you're a slower car, you should always, 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 for the love of God, drive in the right lane. <laughs> I learned that if there's a solid white lane, indicate, a white line, it indicated a zone where you cannot change lanes. And a double yellow line, we well, absolutely can't ever cross that one. 
Have you ever been in a country that had no clear lane markers? I was on a highway in Nepal last spring, and the locals had a system of who does what and when. I, for the life of me, could never figure it out. And there were some stressful moments in that three-hour ride. I felt more comfortable on a tiny commercial airplane named after a mythical creature. Yes, there is an airline called Yeti Air than I did on the roads. If you don't know where you are going, you can end up terribly confused and maybe even in great danger. A few years ago, a group of four friends and I decided that we were going to hike something called the Jesus Trail, which is a 40-mile path through the Israeli kind of wilderness and back roads and villages from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, to Capernaum, which is on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus used as his home base to do much of his ministry. Now, the guidebook says that you should take four days to do this hike, but because we were arrogant and brash, we decided that we could do it in two. Now, in theory, that could be done. Here's the problem. Instead of doing it in the spring or the fall, which are hiking seasons, we did it in the dead of summer. So temperatures are into the 90s. Here's what else we didn't know. That in Israel, when hiking season starts, there's a group of volunteers who will go out and paint all of the trail markers. And when I say trail marker, it could be a, paint, a spray painted arrow on a tree or a rock. When these are clear, the path is clearly delineated. When they are faded, it is easy to get lost. And boy, did we get lost. We were about 10 miles into our hike when we got lost in the middle of an Israeli forest. At that point, the sun was rapidly dropping and we knew that time was working against us. We were excited when we found our way to a road because we said, oh, civilization. Well, the problem was it was a highway. We couldn't cross it. So now the five of us were merrily marching down the shoulder of a road. We had no reflectors. People could barely see us until they were right on top of us. That was dangerous and scary. So finally, we found our way to a bus stop. And at this bus stop, there were men and women in military uniform. And we say, oh, representatives of the local government, they'll know what's going on. Well, many of them lived in other parts of the country. They weren't native to that area, so they weren't helpful in giving us the directions that we needed, at least not in English. So we found another path, and we realized that we were kind of, we hit a fence line, and so we're just walking along the fence, and then all of a sudden, a spotlight shone on us. Now, I don't know about you, but like most people, most of my neighbors don't own like military-grade spotlights. So we knew that something was amiss, and then all of a sudden, somebody from the, this tower on the top of a wall on this major building said, what are you doing? And we're like, we're Americans, we're dumb, and we're lost, and we're sorry. <laughs> and the guy said this in broken English, he goes, uh, stay away from fence. How do you say it's uh, dangerous? Like only later did we find out that we were on the verge of inadvertently breaking into an Israeli military base. So if you don't know where you are going, it could get you killed. And I realize that God has given us the scripture as a gift. Why? So that it can give us a lane that offers us direction. Let me ask you this question. Do you know where you are going? Not in a generic scheme of things, not in an eternal scope, but in this season of your life. Do you, do you know where you are going? Because I think that most of us, we just roll out of bed and the pressure and the crush of life, our only goal for the day is survival, rather than to hit pause and zoom out in the bigger picture and say, what is the current trajectory of my life and my spiritual journey? And then I want to offer this question, do you know how you're going to get there? 
Do you know how you're going to get there? And is God informing any of those decisions for you? So for my personal reading of Scripture, I like to read a chapter from the Old Testament, a chapter of the book of Proverbs, which is in the Old Testament, and then a chapter from the New Testament. And I've, I've been doing that for, for many years. And this week, my Old Testament reading had me in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis tells the story of a sibling rivalry between two twins. Their names are Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's kind of a schemer, and he undertakes this elaborate affair to steal his brother's birthright. So that meant money, it meant influence, it meant status in the community. And Esau was so filled with rage that he swore he was going to kill his brother. So their mother, Rebecca, says, Jacob, you got to run for your life. She goes, when the dust settles, when, when your brother's fury subsides, when his anger dissipates, I, I will send for you and we'll bring you back. And then I kept reading the other chapters and realized that Rebecca never calls for Jacob, which has to mean what? That Eli is still very angry. And this goes on for years, at least 14 years. And I felt this little, just kind of stab in my heart because there's an area of resentment in my own life that I've been processing and I felt like God said, Steve, who do you want to be like? Because if you want to continue to nurture this resentment, if you want to harbor this rage, you could be somebody who, like Esau, lives fueled by anger for decades. Is that the path? that you want to walk. Because if you don't make changes, it's the one that you'll end up on. When we read the scripture, God in his mercy holds up a mirror that says, this is where you are. Is it where you want to be? And this is the place that I've called you. If you trust me, I will lead you there. Life is filled with twists and turns. I need a lane to show me direction. The next section is kind of modeled after the Hebrew letter for M, Mem. This is section 13. It says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. The psalmist says, I'm wiser than my enemies. I'm smarter than the local instructors. I have more understanding than the tribal elders. When life was fuzzy without you, when I found you, everything came into focus. When things are out of focus, life, life can be confusing. Towards the end of middle school, I had probably gotten through the first two years of middle school when I was finally able to acknowledge that I could not see the board in the classroom clearly. But I was self-conscious about getting glasses, so I asked my parents and my optometrist to let me jump straight to contact lenses. Because of the shape of my eye, I couldn't get soft contacts. I had to get gas-permeable lenses, which meant inserting a piece of rigid plastic directly onto my eyeball every day. It took some getting used to, but it was a game changer. And once I could see clearly, I never wanted to go back. The problem was, is that you can only wear those kind of lenses for so long. So when I would travel internationally, I would get lazy. I would pop out my lenses. And then when I was changing flights, 
I would just refuse to put him back in because I knew I was going to have to take him back out again. So that led me like wandering like this through Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam about every six months. It was embarrassing to have to ask other people where the bathroom was because I was too lazy to put in my contacts. When I can't see clearly, I can't get to where I need to go. And when I don't see clearly, things can get awkward. Probably about 10 or 15 years ago when my wife and I were living in suburban Detroit, we had a neighbor, she was single. Uh, she had a dog named Abe that she loved dearly. And I'll never forget, one night in the dead of winter at four in the morning, we heard Abe barking. And it wasn't a rowdy barking. It was like a dog trying to conserve its barking energy because it was about to freeze to that. It was like, woof. And he'd wait for 30 seconds and he'd be like, woof. And I knew this wasn't normal. So I turned to Kelly. I go, I think something's wrong with, I think there's something wrong with our neighbor. I think she's in trouble. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to call the police. And so she said, well, you can't just have the cops show up at her door in the middle of the night. You have to meet them and walk up with her to explain what is happening. So I threw on my coat and I put on my boots. I did not put in my contacts. And I went out to the street to wait for the police. And sure enough, the squad car was there. And I was standing at the window of the passenger side of the squad car waiting for them to roll down the window so that I could talk to them. What it took me a painfully long time to realize is that the window was already open. And the officer was staring at me like a crazy person saying, you called us, speak words. <laughs> so I told him what was going on. We went up to the door. Uh, they were able to finally wake her up. She had fallen into a deep slumber. Apparently, she had won the local billiards league tournament with her friends. They had closed down the local watering hole. She let out the dog, passed out, and uh, he was on the brink of losing his life. She uh, was grateful the next day. She says, here's a, p a plate of cookies for saving my dog, and here's my phone number so you don't have to call the police on me anymore. <laughs> when you cannot see clearly, things can get a little goofy. And we need a lens. I need a lens to show me clarity. When we're flying blind through life, it can be hard to know what is right and what is not. What is best and what is second best. What is true and what isn't. Let me ask you this. Do you have such a relationship with God, such an ability to hear and discern his voice, that you have crystal clarity on what God says is true? Are you being honest about what paths you are on? With your character, with your thought life, with your free time. And where are you getting your understanding about what truly matters? Are you getting it from friends? Are you getting it from strangers online? Are you getting it from the locker room? Are you getting it from the boardroom? Are you getting it from the neighborhood? Where are you getting input about what is true? Because if it's not coming from God, it will not serve you well. So I had a circumstance in my life where I had made a misstep and I was feeling guilty about that. And then I was feeling frustrated that I wasn't having the kind of the, the traction to get past it. And I was debriefing that with a friend of mine, Brian, and Brian said this to me. He goes, Steve, you're always welcome to heap shame on top of the shame that other people have heaped on you. But should you? And I said, well, probably not. And then this morning I was reading in Genesis chapter 30 about a woman named Leah who had experienced rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. 
And finally, she was able to conceive a child, a son, which in that culture was a great affirmation of her worth and her value as a person and as a woman. And she said, now I know that the Lord has taken away my disgrace. See, when my world was fuzzy, I thought that it might just be normal to operate underneath a cloud of shame. But when the scripture brings things into focus, it goes, no, that's not a gift that God has given you. That's a curse from somewhere else. You, you don't have to walk that way anymore. It's God's intent, desire, and wish to peel back the layers of shame that you have covered yourself with. Scriptures give us a lane for direction. They give us a lens for clarity. And finally, they give us a light for our path. This is noon, which is uh, the... 14th section. It says, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life into my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very, very end. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Have you ever been hiking or walking on a path with no light? It is unnerving. I went on a solo camping trip in Joshua Tree National Park and all I had was this tiny little headlamp and I needed a light to show me the next step whenever I was walking down a path. The problem is when you're walking through life with a headlamp, you cannot go very fast. You can only take one step at a time. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm overwhelmed, my instinct is just start moving as quickly as I can. Many of us want God to give us a set of brights that will show us the next 20 steps. But God, who always invites us to trust him, will only illuminate a step at a time. The reason that I need to hear God's voice is not just so that I can have a lane for direction, a lens for clarity, but I need a light. I need a light to show me the next step. Are you running into the dark? Or are you holding steady with the pace of the lamp that God has given you? Some of us are moving faster than the light God has given us provides. And I think that for many of us, the gift that God wants to say is just slow down. Trust me, don't try to figure out the whole next week or the whole next year, or the whole next decade or your whole retirement or all of your family dynamics. All I need you to do is just to take, I just need you to take this one step. Will you trust me for one step? And in my, my reading this week, I heard, read a story about how Jesus was experiencing just a lot, of, a lot of pressure, a lot of input, a lot of demands from the people around him. And it says that his first step every day is that he withdrew to a quiet place and listened to the voice of God. And it was a great reminder from God to me that says, Steve, I want you to be proactive in hearing my voice rather than reactive. Has anybody ever tried to cram hearing God's voice, like you got in the jam and you're like, oh, I need to hear God's voice right now. 
And then some of us like magically do the point and flip. You ever do this one? You're like, God, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. This is like religious roulette, right? Like, oh, give me, give me, give me, give me a verse. I did this with some friends in college and like the verse that we landed on told us what to do if we lost our neighbor's ax head. It was not helpful. <laughs> you can't cram the voice of God. You have to have a steady intake of the voice of God. And what I found is that if you read small chunks of this every day, you'll get a sense for God's heartbeat. You'll get a sense for his character. You'll get, a, you'll get a picture that slowly comes into focus about who God is, what God cares about, how God sees the world, and how God intends you to fit into his purposes. But it only happens one step at a time. It only happens one step at a time. And my prayer for every single one of us here at Central, whether you're here in this room or whether you're joining us online, is that we would be people who, who start every day saying, God, there's a step that you want me to take today that will not be on my radar unless I hear from you. Will you reveal it to me in your kindness? And I believe that that is a prayer God loves to answer. George Mueller says, God gives specific answers to specific prayers. And some of us, we just, we get caught, myself included, praying very generic prayers. God, lead me today. Show me your will. When in reality, we should say, God, lead me in this area. Please show me what one step is that I can take so I can serve my children well. God, show me what one step is that I can take to elevate your name at school or work. God, will you show me one step that I can take in the development of my character because I'm not yet the man or the woman that you've created me to be? Will you show me one step to take today? And will you give me the grace to take it? I believe that the answer to that prayer every time is yes, yes, a thousand times yes. If you are hazy and don't, if you're disoriented and don't know where to go, if you're hazy and don't see the truth clearly, if you're overwhelmed and don't see the next step, there is good news. God is inviting you to take a single step on a clear path to hope. Just one step. And Nate already said it. Before God gave us his word in a book, God gave us his word in a person. And the name of the person is Jesus. And he says, I am the word of God. And he also says, I am the light of the world. Jesus gives us everything we need to know. He goes, I am the way, I am the lane, I am the truth, I am the clarity, and I am the life. I'm the illumination that you need to take that next step. And I believe that the word of God helps us understand who the person of Jesus is. And we cannot follow Jesus unless we know who he is. And this book is God's revelation of his heart and his character to us. So my prayer is that every single one of us would start hearing the voice of God. We'd hear the voice of God through scripture. We would hear the voice of God in scripture confirmed by other people who love us. And we would hear God's revelation of himself through scripture confirmed in our circumstances. God is speaking and at the end of the day, you will be one of two people. Somebody who believes that God speaks to you and lives like he is speaking and opens your heart and your ear and your mind and your calendar to hear him speak. Or you'll be a person who doesn't believe that God speaks. And you will continue to just charge recklessly down whatever path is convenient to you at any given time. And you don't have, you don't have, to, you don't have to believe me. But trust me, from my own experience, 
I have learned that living a life that is consciously deaf to the voice of God only ends in heartache. Why does the psalmist say, I love your law? Because the voice of God is sweet to him and the truth of God is good to him. And if we believe the same for us, God will lead us down paths we never would have chosen for ourselves. And they will be paths that lead us not always easily, but lead us to wonder and joy and adventure and peace. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you are, in fact, speaking. I thank you that speaking is inherent to your nature, that the very first words of the book say, and God said. And Lord, not only do you speak to creation, to call it into existence, but you speak to us. The scripture is full of people that you called them by name. You said Mary, you said Joseph, you said Saul, you said Samuel. You're not just this generic, abstract God. You're a very specific, loving, and good Father who knows us and sees us and connects with us in our moments of yearning and longing and struggle. And you want to lift us. You want to lift us out of our self-centered, small-minded thinking into a sense of childlike wonder, innocence, and confidence in the God that you are. So speak to us now. Speak to us again. Say whatever word or truth or image that we need to hear in order to see you as the God that you are in these moments. Lord, illuminate your love for us with speech that we can hear and understand and follow. Speak to us so that we might be changed. And the words that we speak can be words that breathe life into others. We pray these things in Jesus' name.